This morning we want to take some time to pray uh, for our community, for our families, for our shut-ins, for our churches at the ABA, for Pastor Ken, and for a vision for TBC as we move in to the new year. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard from your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you might anoint the words that were spoken today because we know according to your word they come from you. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit for our blessing. And so we ask, Holy Father, that you would anoint those, anoint those words in our hearts and in our minds and in our thoughts as we continue to worship you today through your word. I pray this morning, Father, for those in our congregation who I've yet to meet and perhaps will take some time as I try to understand where they are shut in and make my way to their presence. But Father, we pray for them and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would whisper in their ear even this morning that they are not forgotten, but that they are loved by us. And so we ask for a blessing in their lives wherever they might be. We ask for those who are hospitalized, who might be bedridden this day, we ask for an extra sense of your peace, for this is the Advent season of peace. And we pray that that would move forth by your Spirit into their lives. Father, we pray for the other churches in our denomination throughout this province and throughout this country. We ask that you would be blessing them this morning and that they would be empowered by your word. And that the Spirit of Christ would move among them, that they might become all that you want them to be. And Father, we pray for our leaders here at TBC, for our elders, our deacons, and our ministry council. We ask for an anointing upon their, li their lives. We ask for wisdom in their hearts. We ask them, Father, to protect the integrity of your word, to stand firm on its truth. But at the same, Father, we now seek a vision for the future. We ask that you would move forward with us, that you would enlighten us one by one, and then as a group, then as a congregation, that we might move forth under the power of your Spirit and the guidance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be with us as we continue today in song and in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh 
When I came to know Christ as my Savior, I was, I was in my 30s at the time. And uh, I remember becoming so curious about the Christian world. I'd not ever experienced it, with the exception my wife and I actually found our involvement in church here in Huntington Hills, a church called Huntington Hills Community Church. And that stemmed from us living in Whitecourt, Alberta, where I worked in the oil patch. And my son at the time, who was uh, four years old, and he wanted so desperately to go to school, but he, he, he couldn't go, and his buddies were going to school, so he was giving Alice, my wife, a pretty hard time. And so I was coming back one day from where I worked, and there was a little church in White Court uh, that had a sign out that children were work- welcome to a daily vacation Bible school. So I thought, well, Alice, there's a school down there. Why don't we see if we can get him in? Well, being the devout mother she was, she was down there five minutes after we spoke, and sure enough, he got into school, and he was excited to get to go to school. And so I would work for 21 days in the patch, and then I'd be home for seven, so my time with the family was somewhat limited at that time. But I recall one time we were sitting around the table when I was home, and my son had been going to this school for a period of time now, and he actually said to me, Dad, you're going to hell. (laughs) That's what he said. This little four-year-old guy blasted me. I thought, what kind of school is this guy going to? And so eventually my wife and I began to talk about it. We saw in him a sense of joy. This little guy, just kind of a sense of joy. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. Out of the mouth of babes comes the truth. And he was right. I was going to hell. And so we decided as a family we'd come back to Calgary. I'd leave the oil patch because my time away from them was a lot. And so we came back to Calgary and we got involved in Huntington Hills Community Church. It was a church that only met during the winter and, 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 and the spring. It shut down during the summertime. You're looking at me, are we going to do that here? <laughs> no, not. But it was run by, the professor was the pastor. It was a professor from the University of Calgary was a pastor. Lovely church. Alice and I got involved fairly quickly, and our kids got involved and I was working at Kelly Stereo Marts. Is there anybody old enough to remember the House of Steins and the Kelly Stereo Marts? Come on, there's older people than me here. Yes. <laughs> well, I was working for House of Stein in Calgary as a salesman. And uh, we would go to this church. And when I went to church, I, because I was salesman for House of Stein, when I walked into the church, there were about 250 people there. All I could see was about 250 stereos. This was a good place for me to connect. And so I got involved with people, and I particularly kind of drifted towards young people because I could see, you know, 30 or 40 Walkmans at Christmas time. And it wasn't long before the pastor came to me and said, Gary, 
would you consider teaching our youth Sunday school? You seem to have a, you can connect with these guys. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, you know, you'll get some material from the Sunday school superintendent and you, you just teach the kids. Sure, I can do that. So I became the youth Sunday school teacher. It wasn't long after he, pastor came to me and said, Pastor, our Sunday school superintendent has resigned. Would you consider being Sunday school superintendent? I said, well, what does he do? Well, he gathers the Sunday school material and distributes it amongst the different classes. And they said, you can, you know, you can go down to the Bible bookstore and buy the material. Review them. I can do that. I became the Sunday school superintendent. That summer, just before we closed, the pastor came to me and said, Gary, our... Uh, Next year, the the chairman of our church council will not be able to return next year. Would you consider being church council chair? What does he do? Well, he, you know, kind of organizes us and, you know, gets us kind of on track and keeps us organized. I can do that. Okay. I'm glad God is God. Because before that season started, I was transferred to Saskatchewan by... Carl Stein, to start three stores in Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatoon, and Moose Jaw. And so I headed out that summer. And I said to my wife, I said, when we get there, sweetheart, you can pick the house, but there's three things that I want you to keep in mind. I'm going to be busy, you know, getting these stores fired up. It has to have a yard, fenced, has to have a driveway done with the garage, and the family room has to be completed. Outside of that, you pick it, we'll buy it. My wife said, okay. Off we went. She went looking. I was busy. Finally, she said, well, I've picked some out. I said, okay, let's go have a look at them. Real estate lady came along, went to the first one. It was lovely. It was nice. But it didn't have any of the three. It had nothing, you know... So I said, well, it's all really nice, but let's go to the next one. So we went to the next house, and it had a couple of the three, and it was pretty nice too, but it just didn't click with me, and and, and it didn't really click with my wife either. You'll realize that at the end of the story. So she said, well, let's go to the third one, but I noticed the real estate lady took me by the first one again to get to the third one. So we looked at the third one, and we decided to go to the fourth one, and she took me back around the first one again to get to the fourth one. I finally got it. Number one was the one. And so we moved in there. And there was an amazing thing that I saw that puzzled me a great deal. My next door neighbor, Bernie, on the back of his bumper car, on a car on the bumper, he had a bumper sticker that said this. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I thought, now what does that mean? And I would stare at it every day, and I'd drive to work with that thing. What does that mean? Didn't have a clue. Started getting involved in a little Baptist church because, our, because of our son and his desire to continue with Sunday school. Uh, little, it was called the half a church. Because they were just building it, and it had this part down and then straight. They were going to build the second half later. They had a program there called Evangelism Explosion to where the pastor was training their people to be 
door-to-door evangelists. And they came to our door one night. Because we'd, we'd gone there and I'd gone there with the same motive. Lots of House of Stein customers here. And he came to our door and he shared the gospel of Jesus with me. And as he was sharing, the light came on. Everything I'd talked to the young people about, everything I'd heard the pastor say, all came to a head. And he said, would you like to receive Jesus now? I said, I can't wait. And so we prayed together, and I accepted Christ into my heart, but I prayed with one eye open. I was looking at my wife. And so they left. We had some coffee and some pastries, and they left. And, and uh, I said to my wife, I said, Alice, didn't you understand what they were saying? She said, oh, yeah, I understood. She said, well, why didn't you pray? I said, why didn't you pray? She said, oh, I made that decision a few months ago. And she said, it gets me every time. She said, the ladies group I belong to has agreed to pray for you every day until you got saved. It still, it still tears me apart that God would be so gracious to a sinner like me and bring me into the kingdom. And I've never looked back. That bumper simper all of a sudden began to make a little sense after a while. Bernie and Gloria Arndt were the two finest, the absolute two finest coffee evangelists I've ever met. We'd go over there every Friday night to play a table game called Risk. Ever played Risk? I was in the military. When he said, we're, I said, what is this? He said, it's a war game. I said, I can do that. <laughs> and we'd go over there every Friday night, and we'd play this game, Risk. And along with our cooks downstairs, Gloria, these people have already been assigned their task in heaven. You know that? It's in the kitchen up there. And Gloria was one of those Mennonite bakers. She made the greatest pastries. It was... was very sinful, but it was so good. But every night, Bernie, before we began to, 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 to share, he would say, can I pray? And I wasn't very much in knowledge at that time about the scriptures about Jesus. I was like Freddie. I was pretty hungry, and I was bouncing all over the place. But he would pray every night, and he'd say, he'd thank God for, for glory and for the food and for us as neighbors, and he'd say, Lord, help me win. I went over to his house every Friday night for two years. I never won. <laughs> I played every strategy you could think of in this game. I got all my men in Australia, and he had about two men around the rest of the world, and I say, now come and get me, sucker. He would wipe me out. But those were fun times. And I became extremely hungry. And as I was sharing with Ron's wife this morning, we were in Regina, and I, my pastor, just, he just didn't have the time to deal with my energy. I was asking him questions, phoning him from work, doing everything. And he said, Gary, have you ever thought about going to Bible college? God has got something going for you. 
And I would encourage you to think about it. I said, well, what are those things? He said, well, they're Bible called, like universities, but they, 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 they're, they're Christian-centered. Oh, well, I said, where do you find them? He said, well, we have one here in Regina, CBC. I said, the radio station has a Bible college? <laughs> he said, no, no, Canadian Bible college. So off I went to Canadian Bible College. And I've not looked back since. My first pastor was in Herbert, Saskatchewan. Any Mennonites in the crowd? Herbert is the capital. The line was Steinbach and Osler, Saskatchewan, and Warman. They're the Mennonite capitals of the world. I pastored in two of them, Herbert, Saskatchewan, and Osler, Saskatchewan. I pastored the free churches, evangelical free churches. But they really weren't evangelical free churches. They were evangelical free Mennonite churches. And we had a wonderful time, my wife and I pastoring those. Well, at the same time, I became the executive director of Saskatoon Youth for Christ and started a Youth for Christ chapter there which is flourishing today in, in, in wonderful ways. Had the privilege of starting a youth center in Saskatoon called EGADS, the place for new beginnings, which was designed strictly for street kids. And we were having 300 kids a day come to that center. And so God has, God has been a blessing, and I'm blessed because of who he is. But I'm most of all blessed for my four-year-old son who had the courage to tell me I'm going to hell. You know that word is not used in church anymore? We don't use that word hell? And that's a shame. Because it's in the Bible. It may not be called hell, and be called the lake of fire, or shul, or some other descriptions, but it's there. Motto. We have lots of mottos. The reason for the season. That's a, that's a good one. But you know our corporate society is just completely filled with one-sentence mottos or four-sentence mottos. One of the greatest mottos of the Christian community was WWJD. How many know what that stands for? Sure you do. It's very popular. It became one of the most popular mottos, not only in Christendom, but it became one of the most popular mottos completely around the world. If you go on their website, the founders of this particular model, you will find hundreds and hundreds of bracelets and jewelry. Young people in particular picked it up. There was a time in the, in the late mid-90s to the, the mid-2000, around 2003, every young person had the WWJD bracelet on. And, and as being with Youth for Christ and, and in my pastorate, I'd run into all kinds of people who had this. And everybody I saw wearing, I said, do you know what that means? Some did know. Some said, no idea. I said, well, why are you wearing it? Because everybody else is. And I would say, well, you know, it stands for well, what would Jesus do? I think some of them almost wanted to rip it off. But models are so important to us. And by the end of this sermon, by the end of this message, I want to introduce a new motto to Thorncliffe Baptist Church. I want to produce an, uh, put a new model there for you. 
I hope you didn't come here just to hear me speak, because it's my first sermon as we await Ken's recovery. But I hope you came here to hear Jesus and see Jesus in his word. You've heard me say many times, and I say it again in the two times I preached to you, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I can become what it says I can become. You believe that? You believe this is the word of God? And if we commit ourselves to its teaching, that we will become what this word says? You believe that? I know you do. Let me ask the tougher question. How do you do at it? Becoming all that we can become. Let's look at our passage of Scripture this morning. We're just going to extract a couple of verses out of there from the context. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, says, Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to attend the Passover paid a visit to Philip. Now, Philip was one of the very first evangelists in the Bible. And they'd come to him. And Philip was from Bethsaida and said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Other translations have, have said, we then would want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew, one of the disciples, about it. And they went, they decided, we better go talk to Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus says this. If these Greeks want to be my disciples, tell them to come and follow me, for my servants must be where I am. If these Greeks really want to follow me, then they need to become my disciple. They need to follow me because I want them where I am. Now, contextually, we'll talk about that in a moment. There's a lot of truth in there. These Greeks in the text wanted to see him face to face. They'd heard about Jesus. They may even have heard of some of the things he said historically, but they wanted to meet him face to face. As I was studying this week, I made a note in my journal. And this was the note I made to myself. Every day I want to see Jesus. And I pray that people will see Jesus in me. That's more difficult than just the words we speak. See, these Greeks were Gentiles. They were not Jews. But yet they came to the Jerusalem feast of the Passover in order to worship the Jewish God. They felt that the Jewish God had some answers for them. And so our passage this morning and my thoughts together brought together for me three reasons why I think these Greeks wanted to meet Jesus and why I think our world, really deep in their hearts, wants to find God. The first reason was dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. These Greeks came and they were dissatisfied. You know, there was a group in the 60s called the Rolling Stones. How many of you, how many of you listen to the Rolling Stones? Come on, Christian. How many of you listen to the Rolling Stones? They were very popular. And they made this song, wrote and sang this song called Satisfaction, who actually, as I studied it this week, is the number, song, it's the number two song in the top 500 songs of all time. 
It's the second best song of all time of the top 500. Why? It certainly wasn't because of Mick Jagger's voice. I mean, I gotta tell you, if Mick Jagger was gonna go to one of these more modern day reality shows like America's Got Talent or The X Factor or the Nashville Star, he wouldn't even make it through the first round. So it wasn't because of his voice it became so popular and remains so popular. And I understand, maybe some of, our, of our, our worship team can correct me, but as I looked at it, I understand the song Satisfaction only has three chords. So it wasn't for his guitar riffs that this song became so popular and remained so popular. Well, then why was it? Why did it become so popular? Because the song resonates. Because it touches a major, sir, sir, major nerve in our hearts. It's the heart cry of the world that is unfulfilled and dissatisfied. They try everything they can, and we're still void. You see, there's a hole in each of our hearts that's created there by God. And the hole is God-shaped. And there's nothing else will fit. Nothing else will fit that hole. And I believe that our world, when you get right down to them and you have opportunity to dialogue with them, you'll find that they too have a sense of dissatisfaction. If study in this period of history, we were no, the Greeks were known for their superior intellectualism and philosophical prowess. Men like Pluto, Socrates, and Aristotle had already come and indelibly planted their thoughts into the world. But I say to you, I've read this, philosophy is just a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> That's philosophy for you. These people took pride in, 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 philosophers take pride in themselves answering questions that no one has answered. Where do you think that question came from? Who cares if the falling tree in the forest makes a sound? That's a philosophy. And the Greeks were filled that way. And our world has become attached to philosophies. A modern-day philosopher uh, used to get $30,000. Today, he gets $30,000 a speech. He didn't like flying, so he hired himself a chauffeur to take him around North America to speak. His practice was to stand at the back of the room while introductions and things were taking place, because he had his speech memorized, so he'd stand in the back room and wait for his introduction. One day after the speech, the chauffeur was driving him to their next appointment, and he just had to speak up. He said, I can't understand. It's just not right. You earned $30,000 for giving a speech that I could give, and I'm working for peanuts. The philosopher said, oh yeah? All right. These people we're going to, they don't know me. We'll change clothes. And you give the speech. And if you give it word for word, absolutely correct, I'll give you the 30 grand. Deal, the chauffeur said. He gave the speech. It was perfect. It was word for word. And just at the end, a lady stood up and said, I don't know if I'm going to get this word right or not. Do you feel that Episcomological universe, at the, the episcomological universe is still valid in the existential world. 
Yeah, you'd look like I would look. <laughs> the chauffeur thought for a second and replied, I'm shocked that you asked such a question. It's so simple. It's so easy. I'm going to let my chauffeur standing in the back of the room answer it. <laughs> philosophy can only take us so far, my friends, and we will never satisfy philosophy. It's designed to elevate man to become God, and that will never work. There are no law absolutes in philosophy or relativism. All truth is relative. A man is the one who decides. No wonder we're in such a mess. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. Standards and absolutes are like walls that protect us from ourselves. Ever stopped at a stop sign? Especially you have a standard shift. You stop and, and out of the corner of your eye you see something's moving. And the minute you think it's me. And you slam on the brake. And it still seems moving. So you push harder on the brake. And you start looking for something, a pole, a building, or something to get yourself orientated. Who's moving here? You know what a philosopher would say? What if the buildings and the poles were moving? You see, we really need some foundation. We, need, we really need absolutes in our life or, or, or we're going to get stuck. We're, our world is going to seem like our spinning and our emotions will be spinning and we kind of get out of whack. And the world outside of the kingdom of God is that way. They have no boundaries. They have no absolutes. And they're always putting their foot on the brake or on the gas pedal because they really don't know where they're going. But we have the answer. We have the answer. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he will gently, by his spirit, start to build absolutes into our lives. He will start to build a wall of protection for us as we move forth in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians um, 1, verses 12 to 20 to 25 says this. So where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world to look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it, and it's foolish to the Gentiles because they believe, that they believe only what agrees with their philosophy and seems wise to them. So when we preach about Christ dying to save them, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. That's our world, folks. But the, gospel, the wisdom of the gospel message supersedes any wisdom of this world. So I say to young men and women, go ahead. Spend your $50,000, $100,000, $150,000 and get trained as a philosopher, I have a better answer, that you would see Jesus. That you would see Jesus. They came to this place, the Greeks, they were confused. They were dissatisfied. You know, in philosophy, we have the philosophy of materialism in our world. 
The person with the great, the person with the most toys wins. You got any friends like that in your life? I got a brother like that. Love him because I like to play with his toys. <laughs> but if you get to meet my brother, he's always looking for the next toy because the philosophy of materialism does not work, and you can't take it with you. If he could. His mansion in heaven would be monstrous. All the toys he collects. The philosophy of, pres- of, of pleasure isn't working. Or there's, there's, um, I'm sorry, of materialism. But what about the philosophy of pleasure? You'll only live once, so just go for the gusto. Just go out there and give it all. Enjoy everything around you. You're only going to live once. So get out there and give it. I tell you, my friends, I did that for 20 years. I did that for 20 years, and it don't work. Because 24 hours after socializing the night before, you're deeper in depression than you were when you first began. The philosophy of pleasure doesn't work. Celebrities are a good example, for they are so much in the public eye, so popular, so wealthy, And most are just like slow-moving train wrecks, moving from one thing to another because it's never enough. And they look into the mirror and see their image, see that their image is fading, their power is waning, and the up-and-comers are taking over. So what do they do? They change their direction, and they try to save the forests and the baby seals because their philosophy of pressure hasn't working they change their philosophy. Now, I'm all for saving the force. My wife is one of the strongest people for saving the trees. She makes sure that all of our garbage, as I call it, goes into each of the right boxes. And my wife would tell you that I'm passionate about animal welfare. I'm absolutely passionate about it. So I'm not talking that those are wrong things. But if you're doing those thinking that you're going to get to heaven, that you're going to get where you want to go, it ain't going to work. The philosophy of pleasure, the philosophy of materialism is not the answer. It wasn't the answer for those Greeks in those days, and it's not the answer for the world today. There's this old song saying, You can use it as a motto if you like. Only Jesus will satisfy your soul. Only he can fill your heart and make you whole. So these Greeks, and I believe they were men and women, came dissatisfied. But secondly, they came disillusioned. They came disillusioned. They were probably converts to the Jewish faith, called proselytes by the Jewish people. They were looking for the truth and God and reality. But unfortunately, in the Jewish religion, they were very far off base. These Greeks were like the Ethiopian eunuch, you remember reading about it in the book of Acts if you're a Bible student, who had studied the Old Testament and been confused and even went to Jerusalem seeking, but went home disillusioned until he met Philip on the way home. The same Philip that now the Greeks are meeting, and Philip introduced him to God through Jesus Christ. They were dis, 
satisfied. They were disillusioned. They went to Jerusalem, and what did they see? It was the Passover. I have a friend of mine who <laughs> worked that I was assigned with, a nice guy, but when I first went working there, he wouldn't talk to me. I mean, he would not talk to me. I couldn't figure out why. Finally, I went to the store manager, and I said, you know, I, I don't know why my friend won't talk to me. Well, he said, I do. He thinks you're an Arab. I don't know where he got that idea. I get pretty brown in the summertime. Maybe it was that. I don't know. But he was Jewish. He was, he was training to be a Jewish rabbi. And he had no time for me. And so finally, I went to him. I said, my friend, I don't know what your issue is. I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I couldn't really talk to him about my faith. I said, I don't know what you got against Arabs, but I'm, I'm not one of them. You know, I said, if I'm a true blood Canadian, as far as I can remember. Well, we got to know, become friends, and, and, and I became a Christian, and, and, and we became friends, and we, could have, we used to have some great debates in the coffee room as he was preparing to be a rabbi and I was preparing to be a pastor. It was an interesting place to be. But he talked to me about the Passover, and this is what these Greeks came to see, and it was very elaborate. It was a great giant celebration that comes way back from the Old Testament. And we remember the story that God said to the people of Israel, once a year you need to get together to celebrate that you've been set free. And so these Greeks had come to Jerusalem believing that this is where they could find God, the Jewish God. And the ceremonies were elaborate, and the buildings and were, were, were wonderful. And they got all excited, and they were saying to themselves, with all these many people here, they must be right. But then that wore off. It didn't fill the hole in their heart. What I'm saying to you this morning is, religion will not fill the hole. The religion in itself will not fill the hole of a person's heart. And North America has become a religious part of the world. But people are dying in their belief that somehow religion will save them. You can go to church. You may be here. You know, there's a saying, being, being religious is... Is, this, is not the same as knowing God. Religion in itself is dead and empty, as are all world philosophies. It leaves you disillusioned, but it's really man's attempt in a logical way to think. Religion, it's the opposite of biblical salvation, which isn't man reaching up to God, but, read it out loud for me, God reaching down to man. That's what salvation is. It's God reaching down to man. I'm amazed at how many people try to do something on their own that seems logical and appeals to their sense and pride and self-worth because they want others to think well of them. Meanwhile, God in heaven looks down sadly waiting for the man to look up and take him up on his free offer of salvation. Here's another model, a hand up. You ever heard that model? A hand up. Religion always involves human effort in order to be saved. Religion says do, 
Salvation says done. Religion says do. Salvation says done. Man will die trying to get to heaven, and sadly, they will get what they deserve. As I shared earlier, I recall with great sadness the years I spent outside of the kingdom. And there isn't a night that I don't lay my head down on my pillow and ask God to forgive me for the damage I did during those years, even the damage that I know nothing about. The Lord only saves those who quit trying to save themselves. The Lord will only save those. It's like a lifeguard. I mean, I grew up in an Air Force base. I'm an MK, military kid. And when I was on the Air Force base, oh, got to wrap up here quickly. When I was on the Air Force base, I took lifeguard training. And they'd throw us in the pool with somebody who was pretending to drown. And as long as that person fought and struggled against me, I couldn't do anything to get them to the side of the pool. That's the way the world is. When, sometimes when God tries to grab them, they drown themselves. They actually try to fight their Savior. But the third thing, and quickly, I want to wrap up here. They came with desperation. They tried everything in philosophy and religion, and yet their guilt remained in their heart. They heard about Christ. They saw his fame. They could reach him. They could touch him. They heard about his long-time miracles and that he was the Messiah of the nation of Israel. We too live today in a desperate world, and I'm wrapping this up quickly. People are searching for answers to real questions. Like, who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? How do I put together this life of mine here on earth? How do I make it worth some sort of value? Well, we have the answer. The answer is Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3 says, For as you know him better, he will give you through his great power everything you need for living a truly good life. It's not a creed or a code or even in a church. The answer is in Christ alone. He alone is the answer, and we need to recognize that we have him. I want to introduce you to something very quickly. I want to introduce you to a new motto this morning. BTVJ. I like it. I think if I was a cheerleader, I'd really like it. BTVJ. BTVJ. It's got a nice ring to it. We say, wow, Pastor, what does that mean? Becoming the visible Jesus. Becoming the visible Jesus. That is my passion for this church. That is my passion for the year 2014. That as we as your staff and your leaders seek ways to reach out into the community of Thorncliffe and Thornhill and Huntington Hills, as we try to create things to draw people into this church, when they get here, what do I want them to see? I want them to see Jesus. And how can they see Jesus? Only through us. And so my platform for 2014 or until... Ken recovers from his, his, uh, his speech therapy, is that this church would become BTVJ. We would become the visible Jesus 
in our community. That when we invite people in from an event, when they walk in here, they're not just going to feel good. They're going to see Jesus through us. Well, that's easier said than done. And so for the first part of the new year, I will be preaching on the principles of becoming the visible Jesus. Freddie and I will be teaching on becoming the visible Jesus. Because that's the dream. That's evangelism today, my folks. I'm an evangelist. I know what evangelism is. And that's the evangelism of this century. Becoming the visible Jesus. Gracious Father, I thank you, Lord, for your blessing. Thank you, Father, for your holy word. I ask you, Holy Spirit, only to take the truth out of my words this morning. Extract things that that might seem confusing and just bring the simple truth. But empower us as we move further, Holy Father, to become BTVJ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.